Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. On today's show, we are once again sharing stories from the March 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum, the 44-year-old annual event that gathers fishermen, their families, and many others in the industry. Hosted by fishermen for fishermen, it is the place to learn about current issues on the coast. Today's Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum were collected by Maine Sea Grant, the First Coast, and College of the Atlantic. We invited forum participants to step into the recording studio, a refurbished Airstream camper, to share stories about fishing, what they love about fishing, and the issues that impact them every day at sea. Coastal Conversations aired some of these stories on the March 2018 show, and you can find those archived on the show's website at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastalconversations. Today, we share the perspectives of five new Fisherman's Forum participants. Some came into the Airstream with a specific story to tell, others simply came in for an interview. You will hear from an elver fisherman, a herring purse a schooner captain, a fisheries advocate, and a fisherman's wife. Their stories will inspire you, surprise you, cause you to question your assumptions, make you laugh, maybe even anger you, and most certainly, these stories will shed some light on new perspectives about the complex issues facing the coast of Maine. The Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum is produced by Sea Grant, the First Coast, and College of the Atlantic. In particular, we'd like to thank Galen Koch, founder of the First Coast, for her expert editing of the audio clips we are sharing today. Galen's a professional audio producer, and we are thrilled to share some of her work on Coastal Conversations. Now let's get started. Our first storyteller is Rustin Taylor, an elver fisherman of 20 years from MDI. In this six-minute clip, Rusty gives us an inside view on the life of an elver fisherman who got his start before the boom of the last decade. Listening to Rusty, you get the feeling that being a good fisherman means being a lifelong student of the mysterious movements and habits of these transparent and slippery baby eels. I'm a commercial um, elver fisherman um, in the spring during the open season. Probably since I was about 15 years old, it's something that I participated in. So, Well, it just came out of nowhere, like like a shot in the dark. Like, no one had really ever heard of it. And I was, th- like I said, I think I was only 15. And my father was like, there. W- I don't think there was much for licensing really required at that time. And just a couple people were just experimenting. They heard it was a new thing that might have value and somebody might be able to take them to a buyer. And it was just a fun thing that I heard about at first. And I'm sure at that time there probably was people doing it lucratively. But um, for me, it was just an adventure to do something new and at night. But I was still in high school. My parents were like, you are not, 
you know, it was questionable. It was a new thing. And I think I was a junior that year or something. And they're like, no, you know, and then, and then the fishery came back consecutive years. And then I was a little bit older and they're like, well, you know, whatever. So I started participating and, you know, if you had a good night, you could make as much as you did at a day job, um, which helped in the time of year in the spring. You know, it's always after a long main winter of heating bills and everything else. It's, and there's no tourism really yet started, and it might be too early to do grounds work or this, that, and the other. So the timing of it is just is really key for a lot of coastal coastal people, I think. T- give us a, a day, or a, let me say a night in your life as an elver fisherman. Um, well, it, you can definitely expect not to get much sleep at all, and um, which... I used to try to fight that, um, and now I just kind of roll with it. It's like my body actually knows after doing it for so many years. As it starts to come into spring, I'm like, my rhythms, my circadian rhythm or whatever is going at 3 a.m. Like, my mind is actually sharp. Like, I'm actually trying to use that to do, like, billing and stuff like that right now because that just seems to be when my mind is, like, anticipating this this fishery that I've been involved in. But um, so, you know, being up late hours and... It's like you almost have to take on the mannerisms of the species that you're that you're pursuing and like so like that would be being quiet and you know at night unseen and just trying to go about it kind of like this like the eels the elvers do themselves. So early on it seems like the lakes are so cold that the elvers tend to stay more in the marine environment in the ocean if you stay a little bit closer to the ocean you tend to find them early on but if you try to move up into the watershed into the more freshwater areas early there's nothing there but sometimes the way the fishery is structured for fixed gear and other types of fishing you might have to move to a spot early way early on knowing you're not going to catch anything in anticipation of the better better fishing later on so there's a lot of factors that um, go into deciding where and within a extreme like limited amount of fixed gear one piece of fixed gear fike net or two max for very few fishermen it's hard to make that choice um which and then the weather it's not just the weather if like in a place like the union river in ellsworth you're totally beholden to the flow rate of the dam there so the that's a tough game to play because that moves the fishery from all the way it moves it a mile up and down the river depending on the flow rate of the dam and that can change within hours at just with the value of electricity at that time or the flow rate or in even or them anticipating a water event like a you know a large rainfall a week ahead of time they'll have to start dropping you know the amount of water they're holding back so that makes it really challenging to fit fish a place like that but it's almost worth it fishing a larger watershed like that because it's such a larger habitat that proportionally the amount of migrating elvers that come in there is proportional to the size of the habitat that it's trying to feed so it's like it's it's kind of a gamble it's really interesting perspective to start off fishing like down around mount desert island in crystal clean you know, mountain streams with like very little activity or of people or pollution in the water. But then later on in the fishery, you end up moving, like I said, like away from the coast to more inland areas. And that used to be Penobscot River, Bangor, Hamden. And it was so crazy to come out of that clean water into water that was almost, you almost didn't even want to get 
near the water because the water quality is so much lower. Like you can visibly see some, you know, road runoff and some diesel fuel and foul odors coming out of who knows what type of, you know, industrialized facility. So it's so much more industrialized in the Penobscot watershed compared to fishing down around, you know, some of the coastal communities that are still not so industrialized and built up. I noticed one time, well, when we were fishing, a lot of us were fishing Penobscot River, Hamden, Bangor. As a group of fishermen, we were able to use all of us collectively our knowledge of where they were. So you could like read where the other fishermen that were in the know were fishing. And we all kind of worked as a group, even if we weren't trying to help each other. But then in later years, when the quotas became such a large reduction and not everyone was able, had to you know, chase and fish for them all the way up into the Penobscot River watershed. You'd go up there and there was almost no, there was no one to be seen. There was no gear, there was no fishermen, and it was, there was no litmus to know where, what had happened. Is there, is there anyone to ask? Have you seen them? Have they run through? Where's the, where's the nets? So it was like no one knew. And it was a, there was at least one or two seasons that even I would think some of the best in the fishery were kind of scratching their heads because no one, really didn't have each other to bounce off from. And can you explain a little bit about the change, why there were less fishermen? Yes, and uh, I mean, I would attribute it directly to the um, really deep over 50% um, quota reductions that that individuals were imposed on um, fishermen, harvesters. They took a three-year average um, catch and then um, were deducted percentages out of that which ended up being i can't remember the exact number but over 50 percent reduction on individual basis so that led to a much shorter season and not having to because before it was what they i guess they termed a derby fishery which was meaning we could you know fish until the end of the open season catch as many as we could but um, with the quota that being such a reduced number um Myself, I, I haven't had to go to Bangor which, at the Penobscot River and as far to fill my quota because I've been able to do it much closer to home. Like, so when the when the price exploded, what at 2012 or whatever it was, I actually kind of sat back and said, "Am I really in the right place at the right time that this is gonna, you know, not be something I can hang my hat on, but this is gonna turn from something that was because I literally fished for them for seventy dollars a pound." In the past. And when you talk about the price going over $2,600 a pound, that's a huge difference. I actually wouldn't even sell them at $70 a pound. I refused to. And I waited till the price was at least $100 a pound. But that's, you know, and then it jumps to $2,600 a pound. So I was like, I'm, I'm at in the snapshot in time where something's actually like really going to work out. And then I almost wasn't even surprised, you know, with the, with the quota restrictions coming down so heavy at 50, 52.9% or something along those lines, it was kind of like, oh man. And it just turned it back into a thing that you do on the side of everything else, which, you know, was disappointing, but not surprising. Even with all the hardships and stories that would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, I do, I, get a lot of anxiety thinking about a season approaching but it is one of the because being at the like where the tide meets the salt water meets the fresh water is you know at that time of year in the spring when nature's waking up it's like it's really one of the coolest places to be and the things that you see like you know i've seen baby flounder in the water i've seen smelt 
smelt fish and different things, um, alewives and just tons of different things that I never even really knew was happening, like right under your, right under your nose, you know, in your backyard, because most people are smart enough to be sleeping at that time. But <laughs> Maine is like, it just seems like if you read back historically, this region has always been look, and you know, fisheries have always been really important, um, for the new England, you know, coastal areas and, you know, with declines in a lot of fisheries, I understand and advocate for protections. Um, but at the same time, it's an argument about how, you know, how much protection does certain things species need. And it's just like, I, I'm glad to participate in this because I just want to be part of, you know, it feels like being part of Maine's heritage to be able to work within a fishery that's valued and it seems like historically it always has been that way. And there's the diversity of fisheries in the state has been, you know, become smaller and smaller. And I'm just glad to have this one still and to have not lost it. And I've tried to participate in a lot of ways to uh, advocate for it so we don't lose it. That was Rusty Taylor, an elver fisherman from MDI, in an interview conducted by Sea Grant, the First Coast, and College of the Atlantic students at the 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Today's show is Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, Part 2. To hear the first batch of stories from the forum, check out the March 2018 archives of the show at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastalconversations. Today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. Our next story comes from Glenn Robbins, who makes his living purse seining for herring. In this interview, Glenn shares his deep concern about changes in the herring fishery, and particularly the advent of herring trawlers. Hearing his perspective, we find that fishermen, just like any other group lumped together by profession, represent many different perspectives. To the general public, the fishing industry is anyone involved in harvesting marine resources. But to fishermen, what species you target, what gear you use, and how you go about using it makes a world of difference. Here is Glenn. I've been a fisherman since, uh, you know, off and on since I was 12. I started lobstering first and heron fishing with my dad when I was 15. Heron fishing looks totally different than it did back then. We've been having problems in the fisheries since the 1990s, the late 90s, when the trawlers came over from Europe and introduced their way of fishing when the North Sea was closed due to overfished. They were supposed to be closed down for five years, but it was only three years, and then they talked the government into letting them in, but they was at a reduced rate. They couldn't just fish openly anymore. So they, they kind of settled in. They bought a lot of our herring in the meantime. In those three years, they were shut down. Since trawling has been here, uh, they predominantly fished on Georges, which is they call Area 3, and Area 2, which would be backside of the Cape Cod, down t- towards New Jersey. And at first, uh, they caught a lot of fish. They caught pretty much the quota. Uh, a fishery is divided up into three main areas, Area 1, and then which got it divided up into Area 1A, 1B, 2, and 3. I fish in Area 1A with a person. And uh, we've always had spawning closures in our area, which 
protect the heron when they're ready to spawn. So we'll leave them alone and they drop their eggs and then we have uh, reproduction. The trawlers have never had a spawn enclosure on George's in the 20 some years that they've fished out there. And in the last two years, that catch has gone from 50, 60% back down to the 20%. And for the summer fishery, and in the winter fishery, which is area two, fish migrate back to the south just like people do. And that dropped down to 11%. And this happened for the last two years, and it doesn't look like this winter's any better than last winter, so I would assume that's going to be probably 10, 11% of the take of the 100% they could have taken. Our fishery last year dropped down for the first time in a long time that we didn't get our full catch either because there has been a drop in heron population around. Uh, this was caused by the trawlers because they didn't have a spawn enclosure out there. Nobody wanted to address it. The government didn't want to address it because they were always told that there's plenty of heron out there. Now there's a crisis coming down and nobody wants to face that, but it, it's, it's getting tight. Everything eats the herring. It's the bottom of the food chain. So what I'm saying, if we don't do something soon, we may lose our fishery. Trawlers aren't allowed to fish inshore anymore because when they did fish inshore, they caught so many tuna and so many whales. And the whales, uh, because the, they're all dead, the tuna's dead, the whales are dead because they can't come to the surface. So they would cut the net open and pull the whale out and let it go. And they'd try to cut holes in the whale so it would sink and not be seen. Uh, that may be part of our right whale problem now. Last spring, when I started fishing in May, Offshore, we went out as far as 65, 70 miles before we found any heron, but we saw also 100 whales at one time. Most of them were humpbacks. I couldn't tell if there's any right whales. I was looking for heron, and the whales were on the heron. So we got a, a trip, and then the trawlers found out where we were, and they went out there, and then they busted them up. And next time I went, there were only eight whales left. And then, I don't know, from there we didn't go back out there because they had disappeared. But trawling has been outlawed in China in 2012, in New Zealand, and in Australia. They let them trawl, but they can't come within 50 meters of the bottom. If they touch bottom, they could lose their boat. They're pretty strict. Canada does not allow trawling. But in the United States, we let too much go. We get too good, and we destroy our industry. So it's trawling. If you want to wipe something out, go trawling. When they first came in, I started losing my market because they could catch fish when I couldn't. So I invested 850000 to go trawling. I still have most of the stuff I'm selling an off little at a time. After two, three years of trying it and catching stuff that you shouldn't catch, mm. whales... I, I says enough is enough. We've done more damage in two years than I've done in 40 years with a person. I says it's not a good thing to do. So I gave it up 
and I've tried to convince other people to give it up. And I don't think the uh, National Marine Fisheries wants lawsuits against them. That's why they haven't proceeded to get these guys out. Uh, so we're going a different route. But it will happen before long because they, they have run out of fish where they fish most of the time. I like fishing because it's quiet out there. You do your own thing. Nobody tells me what to do. I, I'm the boss. And I know I'm helping people out that work with me. I know I'm helping the lobster fishermen out by catching bait for them. When I first started, it was 100% cannery market. It was all sardines. But the canneries went out, and then we had to switch to the lobster bait. And uh, I'm 71. My crew wants me to work till I'm 90. They don't want me to stop. They make good money doing it. And uh, they like me uh, as being their owner and captain of the boat. That was purse seining Captain Glenn Robbins, sharing stories of his life at sea and specifically his concerns about the future of the herring fishery. Glenn's interview was one of 34 collected at the 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum back in March of this year. Our next story takes a different tack. Captain Brenda Evans came to the recording studio, the First Coast's refurbished Airstream camper, with a very specific message she wanted to share. It took some guts for Captain Brenda to tell her story in the Fisherman's Forum setting. As you will hear in this recording, she is quite concerned about what she perceives as detrimental behavior on the part of some lobstermen towards the tourism industry, and in particular, towards schooner tour boats. Captain Brenda wanted to share her experiences, along with an invitation to open the lines of communication between two industries that have long shared the coast of Maine. Let's hear from Captain Brenda. It's not so much that I'm excited about this story, but um, it's it's in the front of my mind um, because of the Fisherman's Forum. Um, and though I'm not a fisherman, I mean, I have a, a non-commercial lobster license, which a lot of the fishermen would, would probably roll their eyes at. But my, um, my now seven-year-old son is just, um, he's thrilled with the idea that he can go down and catch his own lobsters. And he's got his own boots and, and his own gloves and you know he hauls his trap it's right there next to shore so we don't have to go out in a boat or anything but um i've spent a lot of time on the water Uh, i'm only out there during the summer Uh, we sail from um, like the beginning of june to the beginning of october and um there's a lot of water out there and there always seems to be kind of a a butting of heads as to who owns that space or or how we conduct ourselves in that space. I had a an instance uh, near North Haven last September. It was super windy, and uh, we were reefed down. We had a reef in the mainsail, and we were close hauled. And I was gauging our pass with this lobsterman, and we were the only two people out on the water that day. And <laughs> and I'm already behind schedule. Uh, I'm, I know I've got a long beat back to Rockland from North Haven. The wind was against us the whole way. Um, people are, are expecting to be back at 10 o'clock that morning, and we're already well past that. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to serve them lunch because can't not feed them, you know. And this guy is hauling traps, and I was like, okay, if I tack to avoid him, I can't head up. 
because I'm already head up as high as I can. But if I tack to avoid him, um, I'm going to add a, at least another hour to our return time. I mean, it's a it's a big old slow boat, and that's just all there is to it. And I said, and I, I I'm trained to know what my heading is, and I can tell if it's a crossing situation or a collision situation. And if he had just stayed where he was, we would have been fine. He wasn't even hauling a trap, but he purposely engaged his engine, came over, and hit us. I had I called the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard came down to the shipyard that afternoon after we got back. And, you know, he interviewed me, went over and interviewed him. And, it was, you know, it was it was a totally unnecessary collision. With no damage. It was it was done to make a point. And my point is, what's the point? What is the point? Um, one, one time, uh, similar area, lobster move, kind of crossing back and forth in front of us, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as we're on a, a constant heading and, um, finally comes straight at us and real close by on my starboard side and I'm back aft. It's a 99 foot long boat. So he finally gets back to me and I raise my hands in a, you know, kind of like a, what gives gesture because we're not going to be able to have a conversation um and in a situation where most people would have given him the finger like seriously buddy what's what's all this about um but i gave him you know hands up what what's going on kind of thing and he yells over you're you're playing i'm working i was like i'll tell you what if if any of those lobstermen who feel that way could take a minute take a day take a week and come see what we're doing, <laughs> they'll see that there's not a whole lot of play for us. We're, we're hosting people that come to Maine to eat their product. We serve lobster every single trip. So going back to kind of like, what's the point? I figured, all right, well, I'll, I'll calculate how many lobsters I've bought in now 19 years and that doesn't even include the four or five years I was a crew member before then and so every we're serving lobster bakes to these people like three four times a week with my my schedule I have shorter trips than a lot of the other boats um but I I figured it out and if you calculate that what I purchased uh which was this was a couple years ago so the 18 seasons that I was doing the calculations for at that point um, roughly 540 times that I served a lobster bake, not leftover lobster and dip or chowder or lobster rolls or anything like that. Just the, the big lobster bake that's, that is, is advertised as the kind of the hook, you know, come and eat lobster on an island, you know, with melted butter dripping down your chin, that whole thing, 540 times had done that we serve an average of 50 pounds of lobsters every time we do that and so if if you figure all that out that's 13 and a half tons of lobster so then it gets a little more complicated because you have to kind of figure out the average market price during that time and i mean i've paid as much as 990 a pound to as little as 250 a pound so what i did was i i just kind of average that. I said, okay, my average was $5 a pound. 
And I could go back and add up all my receipts for, for purchase of, of lobster, but just for the sake of um, this average, that's $135,000 of lobsters that I purchased myself. But if you multiply that out over the industry from Camden to Rockland, 14 boats in those just 18 years, okay, you're with me? It's almost 250 tons of lobsters at nearly $2.5 million. You get into, it's, it's almost like politics. You talk about Republicans and Democrats and them and they. And I don't think it should be like that because clearly not all lobstermen or not all fishermen are that way. Unfortunately, the, the cases like that are the ones that stick in your mind. Because they are heightened, um, you know, your, your emotions are heightened and your, your body is in that fight or flight uh, reaction to something that's totally unexpected and, and quite frankly, totally uncalled for. So um, not all lobstermen are that way. And that same morning that the lobsterman came by our transom and had his music on and, and was purposely trying to wake us up. We were out in the yawl boat um, with like $200,000 piece of equipment filming this kind of like underwater shot. And another lobsterman came by to check on us. I said, nope, this is what we're doing. He said, okay, well, you just look like you were adrift. I just want to make sure you were okay. And that's, that's the two ends of the spectrum same morning, same harbor. What's the point? Uh, beyond the we're working, you're playing mentality, um, I wonder if they think that we're interfering with their gear. And I think that's really important to point out. First of all, I don't have an engine on the schooner, so we're not chopping things up, although we have a propeller on our yawl boat. We, through great expense, have a stainless steel cage around that propeller, um, not only to protect their gear, but to save us a headache, because there are times <laughs> you need that yawl boat, um, and you don't want to be in a situation where you pick up a trap and, and then you're sitting, um, you're sitting duck. So um, when we occasionally will pick up a trap, um, I have a chain on my head rig that comes right down to the stem, right where the, the water line meets the water. And there's a big shackle there. So conditions have to be just right, but sometimes we'll, it'll catch right on the shackle pin up there. And when it does, I can almost immediately tell because of how the boat handles. Um, even though she is a big, heavy boat, that even just one trap or one buoy with a series of traps almost acts like an anchor. So I can tell just by the way the boat handles that we have, we always say trap on. Um, and <coughs> my crew, my crew has spent a lot of time making sure we don't just go down with a knife. Because that would be the easy way, you know. Um, and making sure we, if we have to cut it, that we've got something that we can hang on to it and tie something onto it. You know, so it doesn't get lost because the whole ghost trap thing, and clearly there's a lot of money. Every time you see a buoy, there's there's the line, there's the trap, there's the bait, there's everything that's lost if that gets cut. And I'm aware of that. 
I'm not out there just going through every place thinking, eh, you know, so what if, if we cut a trap? I want it to be very clear that, that we honor that gear. I, I, I think I speak for all the sailing boat captains. We don't pick gear up on purpose. And we don't take it, we take it seriously. We don't, it's not a joke. It's not a, ah, just cut the damn thing and get it out of here. Who cares? It's not how we view it at all. And I wish there were a way for, for the two to coexist in a, in a, with a common understanding that we are out there to make money. Um, We're out there to provide um, something that our tourists are specifically seeking. They provide the lobsters. We provide a format for them to enjoy it. Um, and there's no reason that we can't coexist and be supportive of one another. That was Captain Brenda Evans sharing her experiences and hopes for better understanding and communications between the tour boat industry and the fishing industry, both of whom have shared the coast of Maine for generations. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Today's show is Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, Part 2. To hear the first batch of stories from the forum, check out the March 2018 archives of the show website at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastalconversations. This is a pre-recorded show, so we will not be taking any calls today. Our next story is one shared by Patrick Shepard, who works for the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington. Having grown up fishing himself, Pat's role advocating for fishermen and the future of fishing communities is an important one on the coast of Maine, where regulations and environmental changes present unprecedented challenges. Let's listen to Pat's perspective. I was born and raised in Stonington. I wasn't born there. I was born in a hospital. But um, I was raised in Stonington in a fishing family. Um, My uh, father is a fisherman, still is a fisherman. His father was a fisherman, his father before that. And so on. I think um, uh, so. My brother and I uh, started our first fishing business when we were eight and nine, and we were fifth generation fishermen at the time. So, um, my uh, uh, so I worked for my brother basically all through my childhood. Um, we were business partners, you know. So, and you know, before we turned ten years old, we were working with each other. We started out with, um, uh, I think three traps a piece. And by the time we graduated high school, we were working from our third boat and, uh, had, uh, 800 trap allocations between us. Uh, we started out in a 21 foot privateer outboard. My father paid, uh, about $7,000 for it when we were eight. I was eight. My brother was nine. Um, we had paid him back by the end of the summer. Um, so it was, uh, and, and that, you know, that wasn't atypical, um, uh, kids in my generation, uh, when we were growing up at the time, you, uh, started out working for your father. Uh, in our case, we skipped that step and (laughs) went straight out on our own. Um, uh, but it was pretty typical to get into the fishing industry early, um, at a, at a really young age and, and have your own checking account when you were eight years old. 
and managing your own business and finances and um it's it's pretty cool um it's one of the cool things about being from a small town is uh, sort of learning the value of a dollar at a very early age um i think it's something that the rest of america the urban america misses my parents would write sick notes <laughs> and we would go fishing <laughs> and when we came to school the next day the teachers would uh uh, ask how much money we made the day before. Um, no, it wasn't like that every day. But uh, some days in the in the height of the the season, especially in June, in um, uh, and definitely in September, um, uh, my dad would write us a sick note if we wanted to go tend our gear. Um, it didn't happen very often, but once in a while he'd throw us a bone. Um, but, uh, uh, definitely when we got out of school at the, in, in the afternoon, we go haul a few traps and, and then, uh, head home for supper, definitely on the weekends. Um, and then we'd fish all summer long. I remember, um, um, the first, um, uh, the first really foggy day, um, that we went in the skiff, um, my brother, we were, you know, leaving the dock and I was asking my brother, I was like, we can't see anything. You know, we didn't have equipment like the, like what exists now. We didn't have a radar and a chart plotter and, um, you know, three different GPS, uh, machines. We had a compass and a depth finder and a steering wheel. And, um, uh, we were leaving the dock and it was, it was so foggy out that we couldn't see sort of the last row of boats in the harbor. It was just pea soup. We could barely see the bow of the boat. And I remember asking my brother, I was like, we, I was like, Matt, we can't see anything. How are we going to do this? And uh, he said something like, don't worry about it. Get, you know, get back there where you belong. And uh, uh, I uh, remember leaving the harbor and my, you know, my brother had a compass bearing for his first, uh, for his first string of traps. And we uh, steamed for a little while, didn't turn. Um, and just ended up landing right on the end buoy. And we hauled through that string of traps, and he took another compass bearing, and we ended up right on the end buoy for the next string. And we did that all morning long. And then uh, by the end of the day, we had hauled through all of our gear in pea soup fog with no equipment, and it cleared off, and it was the most beautiful ride home. <laughs> um, but, you know, we didn't have equipment um, uh, like we have now, and you had to learn... Um, you know, my dad had taught him how to navigate without any of that, that stuff. So he was comfortable. Oh. And it was then that I learned that I would never be a captain. <laughs> my brother's always had a knack for it. And I, uh, I could definitely do it, but, uh, I chose a different direction in life, I guess. I am a, a sector manager for a, a group of groundfish fishermen that operate from, uh, well, they hold permits from Jonesport, Maine, all the way to Cape Cod. Um, so there's one of 18 different ground, we're one of 18 groundfish sectors in New England. Um, we have uh, 33 permits in our sector. Most of them are lobster fishermen who hold um, uh, groundfish permits in hopes that the groundfish resource will rebound in eastern Maine so that they can have the opportunity to go again. In my lifetime, so I'm 30, in my lifetime I've witnessed um, an entire coast full of fishermen um, 
boats of all different sizes, fishing for all different kinds of things, uh, fishing for uh, scallops and groundfish and herring and shrimp. Um, my dad would um, fish for lobsters in the in the uh, summer and fall. And then he'd re-rig his boat for scallops in the winter, and he would drag for scallops all winter. And then he would uh, take the scallop rigging off, and he would go uh, either seining for herring or ground fishing in the spring, and then he'd roll right back into lobstering. And that was um, that was what you had to do to make up an income. You were a diverse fisherman, and you had licenses for all of these different things to fish. And in my lifetime, over the past 30 years, we've been condensed to just one fishery here on the coast of Maine. And lobster is king, and we don't really have access to much of anything else. So I think, um, uh, and this is the reason I do what I do, I, um, I see a lot of value in having a diverse set of fisheries to, to go after. And um, I think we've, the ecosystem benefits of having a diverse set of species out there that have sort of all intermingle and um, the benefits to communities to having a diverse set of resources to, to process for, you know, infrastructure and shoreside businesses. Um, we need to get back to that. Um, a species will uh, uh, just take a digger and we have to figure out, okay, you know, this resource has, has all but collapsed. Um, if it's starting to come back, um, we need to limit the amount that we're taking and we need to figure out how to make a profit from that. Um, uh, uh, some of these other species like lobster, um, we have a, a, an amazing resource of lobster. Um, is it going to take a, a crash in the lobster fishery to start to change people's minds about the volume that they're bringing in? Um, I hope not. Um, I hope we can, we can start to figure that out. Um, shrimp, uh, the same story, the shrimp fishery crashed in the state of Maine and, and, um, we may or may not be seeing that resource come back. There is some talk of, of maybe having a fishery next year, but it's going to be very limited in, in scale. Um, and um, um, through these, these, um, these species crashes, we've figured out how to innovate. Um, and some of the best ideas, actually probably all of the best ideas on how to capture the value of a limited amount of resource have come from fishermen. And that's been pretty cool to watch. The scallop, we saw it in the scallop fishery uh, along the eastern half of the coast of Maine. Um, we, uh, our organization held, I think, over 125 meetings with scallop fishermen um, as the resource was starting to come back. And uh, at each of those meetings, we said, okay, this, you know, it seems like there might be something happening here with this resource. We were, anecdotally, we're seeing uh, things start to build back up. How do you guys want to manage it? And in eastern Maine, we heard a resounding um, uh, opinion of the fishing fleet that wanted a, this to try out this rotational style management. So fishermen got together with each other, um, basically divided the whole eastern coast up uh, into big sections and 
said, okay, you know, based on what we know about the biology of the animal, they should be either two or three uh, year rotations. So we, we designed this three year rotation, uh, rotational area management for the eastern half of the coast. And I think we're seven years into it, six or seven years into it now. And we've seen uh, the most boats that have participated in that fishery in the past 10 years uh, just sort of, you know, bounce right back. It's not perfect. It's got its issues. The, the management structure has its issues. But we've effectively figured out how to harness the knowledge of fishermen to in, in order to, to preserve a resource and make it more sustainable. And guys are making a, a, a little bit of a living in the wintertime, which is a pretty cool success story. If you're just tuning in, that was Pat Shepard of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington. Pat was among the nearly three dozen people interviewed for the Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum project, stories collected and produced by the First Coast, Maine Sea Grant, and College of the Atlantic. This audio clip and all of the ones shared on today's Coastal Conversations show were edited by Galen Koch of the First Coast. Our last story today comes from Marsha Beale Brazer, the wife of a Maine fisherman who shares a moving account about when she almost lost her husband to the sea. This story is one of hope and faith. Here's Marsha. My name is Marsha Beale Brazer. I want to tell you about a 20th century miracle at sea. On October 14th, 1991, I was in my driveway planting daffodils. A person came to my driveway and told me that my husband had fallen overboard and that he had drowned. I drove down to Perkins Cove. I live, we live in Agunquit, Maine. I drove down to Perkins Cove, and I saw the fishermen there, and I said, please tell me, has this really happened? And they said, well, they found your husband's boat. My husband's name is Norman Brazer, Jr. The name of the boat is the Marsha Beale, which is after me, a 32-foot Holland fishing boat, lobster boat. And they said, uh, yes, the, we found his boat. The gunnels were dry. Um, Gardner Marshall saw the boat. It was heading toward Kennebunk Port, and they said, we don't think that he had a chance to survive. Mark Sewell from York was getting into his truck in York Harbor, had heard the news about my husband falling overboard, got back in his truck, decided he was going to go and explore the fresh bait in the lobster traps. He was led, he said, he told me he was led to do that. Meanwhile, what happened to my husband, Norman, is the toggle buoy wrapped around his leg pulled him to the stern of the boat. He had the knife up forward. He was uh, strong enough to pull the rope, fall over, uh, over the side, and then be drawn under the water, and then released the rope from his leg and popped up. And no boat. He looks over, and he sees Boone Island, and he thinks, oh, my gosh, uh, I'm not ready to go yet, but I'm going to try to swim. Thank God he knew how to swim. Most fishermen don't. He kicked off his boots. He was decided he was going to swim to Boone Island. And so, meanwhile, 
Mark Sewell was the one with his mate, was led to find my husband. He went by this thing that looked like a grassed-over lobster buoy, and he decided to turn around and not pass pass it over, as he said. He went back and looked. It was my husband's head in the water, with his hair coming down, looking looking like a grassed-over lobster buoy, just ready to go to Davy Jones's locker. And I'm on my hands and knees at the dock praying to God, please, dear God. It was like a bad dream. And everything was in slow motion. Every single thing was in slow motion. Uh, All of a sudden, a friend called across and said they found him. They didn't say if he was dead or alive. He's at York Hospital. So Kathy Tower, Barnacle Billy's daughter, and, and Abby Taylor, my old babysitter, drove me to the hospital. We got there. There was no sign of my husband. I thought, that's it. He didn't make it. And all of a sudden, we got word that he was coming in. They opened up the doors at York Hospital. He came in. He was as gray as a battleship. And he had already had CPR twice. The Coast Guard woman gave him CPR. The York Ambulance came in CPR and gave him CPR. I had taken a course in scuba diving, and all the young guys wanted to go sea urchin fishing, right? I was the oldest person in the class and the only woman. And I remember them talking to me about this Dr. Shaker, who was a very good doctor for hypothermia. He's the best one north of Boston. And I said to the hospital, I said, by any chance, do you have a Dr. Shaker here? And they said, oh, well, yes, but he's not on call. I said, would you... Would you mind calling him? So an hour and a half later, Dr. Shaker comes out of the, the operating room and says said that my husband was literally drowned, that he had a gallon of seawater in him. His temperature was 84, and I think 82, i got to check that out, 82 is as low as you go. His heart was in AFib, but, but he thought he was going to survive. So then he finally came back another hour in a whole room filled with all our friends and people. And and he came back about an hour later and said, well, we think that he's going to be okay. You can go in and see him. So I said, I wanted his mother to go in first. So his mother went in first. And then I came in. And the first thing he said to me is, how's the boat? So I knew he was okay. So he, he, he came home and we had a boatload of people streaming in and out of our house. But, you know, it was almost like we had these streams of men come, people come to the house, and and they wanted to hear the miracle. They wanted to hear the story. And my husband, being quiet and shy, he talked in, in that week more than he's talked in a long, long time. Keep t- they keep telling the story. And it was a story of hope. It was a story of hope. He just wasn't meant to go. And and we're still working out that. And what would happen to me is I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, did he really die at sea? Did he really make it? Am I dreaming? I had a really hard time uh, dealing with that. And he's always been very down to earth. I call him my Gabriel Oak, a Thomas Hardy character. Uh, and... Um, 
he's always been a very true to himself person. He walks every morning. He's a lobsterman. He has a garden. And it really actually changed me more than it changed him because he was already okay. I, I just wanted a, a more simple life, and I and it brought me down to earth about what was really important. And I think I'm going to cry right now just thinking about it. It's been a long, long time. And I feel so blessed that um, my husband was saved for me because I wouldn't have had him all these years. And we have so much fun. We've been married for 52 years. He's the love of my life. And I'm just so blessed. And, and I, it's hard to even know how to think about it. it. That's just the way it is. It's the synergy of everything working together. And it was truly, truly a 20th century miracle. That was Marsha Beale Brazer sharing the story of her husband's near drowning and incredible rescue. Marsha's story is a moving tribute to the hundreds of men and women who have lost their lives at sea while fishing. Her story encapsulates how fishing may be the profession of an individual, but fishing is also the collective experience of the whole family and even of the whole community. We've come to the end of our Coastal Conversation today, sharing a second installment of Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum, a project of Maine Sea Grant, the First Coast, and College of the Atlantic. If you've enjoyed these five voices from the Maine Fishermen's Forum, you can find more at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastalconversations. We're especially thankful today to all the folks at the Maine Fishermen's Forum who stepped into the Airstream trailer, our recording studio, to be interviewed. And thanks so much to Galen Koch of the First Coast for editing all of today's stories and to our COA student interns for helping conduct and transcribe interviews. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.